here. He's from California. He was in town. Shane goes to him like two or three times a year. Well, more of me and Jason go regularly to a girl over in. Man, this guy. Whew. Yeah, I don't. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, the girl I went to, we had COVID. COVID shut it down. And she has a young child, so her hours aren't anything I can do with work. But I think that's what it is, because I can hear my neck. Oh, oh fun. Well, thank you guys for coming. We'll go ahead and... Yeah, that's fine. We'll go ahead and get started. We, um, As you know, what we were working on last week had everything to do with how the Holy Spirit introduces Himself to His people, uh, especially in the book of Genesis. We walked through Genesis chapter 1 and His... Uh, creative actions, the reality of wherever the Holy Spirit goes, life follows in his wake. And wherever the Holy Spirit is removed, death follows in his wake. And those two aspects will make sense throughout all of Scripture. Everywhere, even when we come to the New Testament, I think a lot of times we get um, we get sidetracked when we talk about the Holy Spirit as though he is there uh, for us, he's there, and then our spiritual gifts are for us, and then we become myopic, and we become very nearsighted with regards to what the Holy Spirit's role is. Um, even when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and we talk about that as though it's, it's something for me to feel better, when in reality, it's something given to us to serve other people of God. Uh, there, there's, a, there's an aspect of joy that comes out when we have fellowship with one another. There's an aspect of peace and of kindness. In fact, none of the fruit of the Spirit can be done in isolation. That's on purpose. And the reality is that throughout the scriptures, the Holy Spirit has addressed these issues about himself over and over and over and over again. And I find that the ignorance of most Christians, when it comes to, I would say, perhaps the most meaningful part of the Christian life, and that is the indwelling of God Almighty within our souls upon salvation, we look for such small pieces of the effects rather than the whole life transformation that the Holy Spirit actually brings to us. So, like, for instance, when we come to Genesis 1, we opened that up last week, we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters, bringing up life out of the dark death deep. There was nothing there. There was no form. There was no life. It was void. It was lifeless. And the Holy Spirit comes, and when he is done with his work, along with the Father, along with the Son, life is everywhere. Life to such a degree that if the pinnacle of that creation, mankind, simply stuck out his hand and took from the tree of life, he would live forever. An unending life that has no breaking, no death, no pain. In fact, no sweat of the brow to till the ground. It was not a partial creation. It was a complete creation, full And these are the aspects of what the Holy Spirit was doing. Now, we then went and jumped forward 1,600 years, 1,500 years to right before the flood, where the Lord says, my spirit will not reside with man forever, for he is flesh. I'm going to give him 120 years. He pulls his spirit out of the world. The Holy Spirit leaves the world. And that's when the effect of it, the flood, judgment, right? Yeah. So all of these aspects of it are connected with life, are connected with enabling worship, are connected with bringing that to the people of God. After the flood, we have a very different world, completely different. A world that is not familiar with the Spirit of God on those levels. In fact, we have a world that is defined far more by its death 
and by its darkness than at any time before that. And so you'll see that it's quite exceptional. You'll see, for instance, in, in Genesis 41, where Joseph is able to tell dreams and interpret them, and Pharaoh himself is able to recognize that in him is the Spirit, capital S, of God. He, a polytheist, was able to recognize that there was something otherworldly in him. In other words, this is not the norm. Whereas before the flood, there was an unusual norm of this. The Spirit of God resided with man for those 1,500 years in a way that he didn't after the, fact, after the fact of the flood. And man responded to that by having thoughts that were only evil continually. Remember, we talked about when mankind tries to do this good and evil thing, what happens is evil infects the whole being and wipes out the good. When the Holy Spirit comes, the reverse begins happening. That is, that is this picture of, of give and take the whole time. Man's contribution is evil now. God's contribution is good in life. Man's contribution is death and sin. And that, that bifurcation continues throughout the scriptures. Today we're going to find ourselves in Exodus 31 to start, and also Numbers 11. Um, we are going to be uh, going through a lot of this at a pretty heavy clip, um, a pretty good speed. So there's a lot of material, but... We're going to skim the top of it, and I really wanted to get uh, this kind of overview of Scripture um, because I'm looking to end the book of Revelation come June. So I want to get us through the Old Testament, perhaps by the end of March, and then into the New Testament and spend three months there because uh, the aspects of the Holy Spirit are simply some of the most rewarding studies in all of Scripture. I wouldn't be teaching a class if it wasn't. Uh, it's not just a curiosity, but I find in the church most Christians have an idea that the Father is quite important, the Son is quite important, and the Holy Spirit is an afterthought. Even in the way we sing, even in the way we pray, even in the way we act, even though the reality is that the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity that we interact with the most. Whenever we open Scripture, we're reading His words. Whenever we are praying, we are praying in the Spirit. This is... This is the normative aspect of the Christian life, and I find this to be uh, quite helpful. So Exodus 31, as I said before, Genesis is written while the people of Israel are wandering around the desert. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all written within the same decade, uh, even though Genesis, for instance, deals with things way in the history in the ancient world, even to Moses at the time. Um, the latest thing in there was Genesis 50 happened 400 years before Moses was writing it. So even the latest thing in Genesis is centuries before Moses was born. And then the extreme ancient things of that were two, 3,000 years. So Moses was writing about things in Genesis that were as ancient to him as Moses is to us. That kind of needs to be grasped because we usually think because they're sitting so close to each other, there's not that much time. But Moses is introducing the people of Israel to this reality. This is how God has always interacted in the world. And if we are going to have life in any way, we can't look for it in another God. If we are going to worship in any meaningful sense, we can't do it on our own. And God makes this deathly clear to Moses when he's up on Mount Sinai here in Exodus chapter 31. He talks about how his spirit is going to enable them to build the tabernacle. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I want you to see it here. Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, now this is in the middle of uh, all of these instructions to, you know, how to build all these things, the bronze laver, the basin, the altar, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, everything. 
Um, now, I, it would have been overwhelming to Moses how on earth we don't have anything like this. Um, how do we build something like this? We just kind of wing it. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. If you have a good translation, it will capitalize the S there. That's on purpose. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. What's the purpose? It is to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have also appointed with him Holiab, the son of uh, Ahissamach uh, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And here's the list, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on the top of it, and all the furnishings of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand and all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their services as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded, they will do." Why in the world is the Spirit of God required for the building and furnishing of the tabernacle? That's one of the first questions I want us to interact with this morning. Couldn't we just build a building and it be good enough? Couldn't, couldn't we just have our hearts in the right place? And maybe, maybe we get some things off. Maybe the, maybe the lampstand isn't as tall as it ought to be or doesn't have as many branches as it ought to. Why is the Spirit of God required for such a thing in such a unique way? Why do you think? Well, there's purity there, you know? Yep. Um, looking at that, like I said, even a pure gold of the lampstand. So, purity, I, I believe. And, um, looking at this, also, um, I believe that the... the, the the reverence of God and building this is just so significant mm -hmm. that you couldn't even, I don't know if you could even come to your mind, maybe even back then, even, even today of trying to build something this significant that, you know, that, that, that he requires, you know, as a builder, you, you, you know what I'm saying? Right. We could throw this building together. They could probably throw in this building together, right? but not to the level of what he is asking Correct. or actually telling because he said, you shall do, yeah. you will do. Yep. You know what I mean? At the end, Morning, mine says, shall do. Um, so, Same concept in Hebrew. Yeah. Yep. And and I think in putting it in a, the category, he said he did, is, is um, um, I'm, I'm curious on, and it's utensils. I'm, I'm curious on what's, what's he mean by all utensils, so there's more to it. Yep, absolutely. So like on the altar, you have... You have forks, you have, you have ash pans and everything. This is, this is, you are not able to even make the stuff that takes the ashes out of the altar yeah. without my spirit doing that in you. We're in Exodus chapter 31, by the way. Um, when we're, when we're talking about this thing, it really brings us back to what's the purpose of the tabernacle to begin with, right? If, if, if it requires this level of design and this level of ability. And he, and he says, not only is it a Holiab, not only is it Bezalel, but it's like all the able men I've given ability. I've given to the two guys the Spirit of God, and I've given all of their workers ability, which means you all lacked the ability to do this. 
I want you to connect that with salvation for a second, because the whole concept that salvation is God's work and not man's work finds all of its roots here in the building of the tabernacle. Correct. Right. You cannot bring salvation, sacrifice. You can't even clean up after the sacrifice unless it is God doing it. And one of the things that I think a lot of people are not familiar with with the tabernacle is the tabernacle was decorated in a very specific way. Inside, you know, from the outside, it just looked like goat skin. On the inside, it was painted with pictures of fruit trees and blossoms and flowers and all sorts of things. Even the lampstand looked like a twisted tree with light coming off of it. What do you suppose all of that is bringing our minds back to when the book of Genesis is being written at the exact same time? Yeah, the Garden of Eden. The whole point is that the way that was guarded by the cherubim back in Genesis, the way to the tree of life, you want to know, anyone want to guess as to what is painted on the front panels of the tabernacle? Nope. Very good thought. That's inside. On the outside is the cherubim. Two huge painted murals of cherubims are painted right on the entry door to the tent. You can't come here. Inside is life. You don't have the ability to make it. You don't have the ability to earn it. You don't have the ability to design it or change it or any such thing. It is the Spirit of God who is going to do all of this. Which means when they enter the tabernacle, they're entering a type and a picture of the Garden of Eden. By the way, this will become very, very important when it comes to the ministry of Christ and the virgin birth. This is not just any ordinary man. An ordinary man couldn't do any of this. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a rabbit trail I'd love to take with you. Moses saw them. Right. So. Yeah, it's a pretty terrifying thing actually because um, uh, how exactly that works out and what we what all we know about that time period in history is very very small. Uh, I just discussed. I mean, the Book of Genesis covers nearly three thousand years of history. There's not 3,000 years of history written in there. There's enormous jumps in time. Uh, and again, the things of the world before the flood were very, very different. Even the, even the Garden of Eden was exceptionally different. I mean, the cherubim, I actually, this is opinion now, I believe the cherubim stood there until the flood. I believe the Garden of Eden continued to be the temple of the Lord in the world until the flood came and took it out along with everything else, which means that world was well aware of what a cherubim looked like because he was standing right there the whole time. Um, personal opinion there, because Scripture doesn't say that, but Scripture also doesn't say he left, and there would be no reason for him to leave. If there was, then God would have just wiped out the Garden of Eden. Opinion, but that would be my assessment of how the world knew what it looked like and what one looked like. Um, Because it wasn't just the people of Israel that painted cherubim. The Hittites, the Hurrians, all sorts of other cultures did as well. So there was a cultural memory of that, um, at least from some background somewhere, um, so when we see all that, we're, we're seeing that the way the inside of the tabernacle and even the outer courts where the altar and the incense and everything would be burned, and, and especially the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, the promises of God underneath his own mercy, all of that cannot be designed and carried out by man. In fact, the design of it was not optional. Same, by the way, as the Ark for the Flood. The design is not optional. The plans came from God. That's the end of the story. You, you do, your, do it according to the blueprints. You don't get to just come in here and go, you know what, I want, I want to be on you know, a Titanic version of the ship. No, no, no. You're going to build the ship exactly as I say. He says, says to Noah, he says to Moses and to Aholiab and to Bezalel, you're going to build it exactly how I say. 
the task I'm giving you is too hard for you. You can't do this. You can't actually make life, no matter how good your intention. You can't bring it into here. The Spirit of God must bring life into this. You can't design the tent of meeting, and you cannot build it. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, all the furnishings of the tent, even down to the very chairs and the tables and the tablecloths. They have to be able to have ability from God because mankind doesn't have that ability. That should say that here in the first temple made with human hands, the tabernacle, it should start off the people of God with an expectation that should life and salvation come into our world, it will not be by our hand. It's going to be only as God wills. It's going to only be by his design, and it's only going to be by his ability. And if he chooses to be merciful, to actually use people to carry that out, it's going to be by his spirit. This is a pattern that does not break anywhere in scripture. As you go through the entire time, you have um, people like David and people like Saul that experience the same things, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. All of them in all the eras of Israel's history, even all the way up to the ministry of Jesus Christ, no human is doing the work of God without the spirit of God giving him ability. This comes to the spirit of uh, the, the Holy Spirit coming to Christ, even at his baptism. Can anyone name a miracle that Christ did before his baptism? Nope. No miracle. There's a reason for that. All of his miracles are after his baptism when the Holy Spirit came in. That doesn't mean that the Son of God didn't have ability. He did. He had his role, though. And the Holy Spirit has his role. And the Father has his role. We're going to be talking about that this morning. What was the Father's role in the ministry of Jesus Christ? It was to do the will of the Father. It was to be the one setting the plan. Christ was carrying out the plan, and the Holy Spirit was giving him ability. A picture of the church. We will get to all of that. It means then that even down to the design of the tabernacle and the callbacks to the Garden of Eden, we're dealing with the stuff of life. Even while it's skin covered and it costs death to bring it, death leads to life. That's the picture of the tabernacle. Look what we're dealing with. The altar of incense, the tent of meeting, the, all the things that will carry out the ashes of these burnt offerings, um, the garments of Aaron, the priest, and the garments for his sons, their services priests, all of these things were, were soaked in blood and consecrated with the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Because you do not have life now in this world without death taking its place. You can't bring life into this world. Again, we, God's not just going to come up and create the world again. And that's the end of the story. You can't just add life to death and expect it to work. How many of you have ever had a collection of apples around uh, November and and you get a nice good bag of them and, while you're picking them off the tree and then you go, oh, there's a bit of a rotten one on the ground. We'll toss that in there. That's not going to have any effect on all the good stuff. What happens? They all, rot. they all rot. This is the aspect of what happens when good and evil, and we talked about this, the knowledge of good and evil in the tree of the garden. What happens? When we have the knowledge of good and evil, we don't enact like God and and be able to see what it is, know what it is without it affecting us. We thought we could go in for the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil and hold them away from us without them affecting us unless we allowed it. But the reality was evil infected everything that we are and wiped out the good, the good that God created us to do. And we can't just add good to this and save it. We can't add good to our lives and make it eternal. 
The reality is that evil has brought death into the world. The New Testament will say it explicitly. The Old Testament here is defining it and showing it to us. The New Testament will say it in a single sentence. Sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus all died. End of story. But in the Old Testament, he's, he's expressing this, he's showing this, and, uh, and the Father is, is expressing these plans to the people of God that in order to even address me or approach me, it has to be by my Spirit. You can't even do that. If the people tried to come up Mount Sinai, what would happen to them? They'd be burned up, yeah. destroyed, and killed. Is that because Moses was better than them? No. No, it was because God invited Moses to come up. You know, Tim, uh, just to, something, I question there, I should, you know, what it looked, what it was about. But if you go in a, and from 30 to 31, it gives each one individually on, on what, what it was, like the incense. And it was <laughs> so specifically made that, and for the smell of it. And they said that at the end, that he told Moses that this is what we need. But if anybody makes it themselves to smell it, they shall surely die. Correct. They'll be cut off from this people. So even if they tried to, so it was for the most holy, holy, it's for God only and in the tabernacle. Correct. Anybody that did it outside was cut off from it, was gone. Right. So I think that's important as well uh, to look at as, as you read. I would just question it and I looked up and I said, oh, there's my answer. Yeah, you try to do it on your own, it'll end up death. Yeah. Right. And the whole point of the tabernacle was to bring life into the camp. It was to actually bring them God himself. Uh, we, we talk about salvation in, in kind of a, a separated sense from life. We think we have our lives and then we have salvation over here, which is just for after death. No, no, no. That's never how God's been talking about it. The reality is that in order to have any purpose to breathing, there is God. We don't have this ability to just carry on our lives separate from God. If we carry on our lives separate from God, it would be akin to making this incense for our own house. And what does he say happens? This people's killed. This is not something that we can trifle with or mess with. Trusting in oneself is enormously dangerous because we know what we contribute to the good-evil balance. What do we contribute? Evil. It doesn't take much, does it? And that's the whole point of unleavened bread and everything is teaching them that just just a little bit, just a little bit gets in there. And what does it do? It overwhelms us. The book of Galatians does the exact same thing, but he's talking about it in terms of salvation direct, where he says, look, if you if you trust Christ for all these things, except for circumcision, you want to take circumcision and say, I will do that and achieve that part of the law on my own. I'll just have Christ for the other 99% of it. He says, Christ is of no value to you. That's really powerful language. What he says is, it's either all of Christ, all the work of God, or whatever little evil you keep for yourself is going to eat you alive. And you will end up dead. And all of these things show us that the gospel itself is, first of all, not a new concept when we come to the New Testament. This is how the Spirit of God has worked since the very beginning. Man can't save himself, and on top of that, man can't even make the place or the utensils or the things with which sacrifices could theoretically save him. Even if it was for a time to cover over temporal sins. I want you to see a bigger picture of this one that probably most people don't deal with. It's in Numbers chapter 11, um, and then we'll, we'll field some questions uh, about some of this stuff.
Numbers chapter 11. Bit of a longer passage, but it deals with the hope of Moses. You know, we hear a lot about Moses and some of the things that he did and the instructions he handed down. Obviously, in Numbers 11, we've zoomed forward many years. They're, um, they're several years later, still wandering around the desert. Remember, they were there for 40 years. This is towards the end of it. And the people hate Moses at this point because he's having them do all of these things and they're frustrated. They remember the melons and the cucumbers and everything in Egypt and all they have every day is free bread from heaven. And it's not good enough anymore. I mean, I'd like to think that I would be above that. But 40 years is a long time eating the exact same meal three days a week. It really is. It's a long time eating the same stuff every day for something that you can't control. They had to fully depend on God for all food. They lived in a deserted place filled with sand. They went out every morning to collect these little particles, these like pale yellow, it says coriander seed looking stuff, just flakes that fell with the morning dew every morning except for the Sabbath. Twice as much fell the day before. And you're to collect all of that stuff every morning which means they were learning every day you have to do this and depend on the Lord. You cannot possibly save it. God would ensure that it dies if you try to do that on your own. The pictures extend through all of that. God will sustain your life. And what they're saying is that's not good enough for us. We don't like that. And that's where we pick up this story. Verse 1, we'll start. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. You know the story's not going to end well when that happens. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Notice again, where is death occurring? It's not close to the tabernacle in this story. It's on the outskirts, right? Life close to the tabernacle, death farther away from it. The picture is if you're complaining about the Lord, you're not close to the Lord. That's a really good lesson to keep in mind. The people then cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, means burning because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. What they really wanted was meat. The people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Basically, I don't even want to eat it anymore. It sounds like a three-year-old sitting at a table looking at it, and it's just like, all I have is broccoli to look at. Like, I'm not even intending to eat it anymore. Peas. Right, <laughs> or peas, right, lima beans in my family. Now, the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bdellium. Pale yellow gemstone, by the way. Uh, not gemstone, um, uh, a hardened sap-like thing. It looks like a gemstone. Uh, the people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. Now, when you say cakes, uh, bread, not, yeah, not delicious cake. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. Get this picture in your mind. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth 
that they should say to me, carry them in your bosom, excuse me, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers. Where am I to get meat to give all, to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able. Look at that. Every time you see the Holy Spirit, it is connected with primarily life, and secondarily, abilities. And the abilities always, always, always will be tilted towards life, right? So when the Holy Spirit, for instance, to apply it here, when the Holy Spirit addresses gifts to the church, and a lot of them are abilities, a lot of them are abilities. Uh, uh, A gift of faith, for instance, is an ability to depend upon God. That's not something natural to us. We do not naturally believe the Lord. That is a gift, So is the grace, so is the faith. Ephesians says that straight up. But every fruit of the Spirit, every gift of the Spirit is an ability, but not for you to glory in yourself. It's the ability to serve one another out of purified hearts that God gives ability to. Moses here interacts with this reality, even in the Old Testament, where he says, I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I found favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. I would rather go to my grave than to see myself fail to serve the Lord. That's a remarkable position. And now, don't don't think of it as like this, this high moral thing. What he's actually saying is, I don't want to fail, and I know I can't do this, but you're giving me people that I can't lead with abilities I don't have. What am I supposed to do? And now we see the Spirit of the Lord given amongst multiple people for the first time in all of history. Up to this point, the Spirit of the Lord was interacting with Moses directly. This is why he could go into the tent of meeting and look God face to face. It says, as a friend talks to a friend, Moses talked to the Lord. That's, that should be mind-blowing, because the reality is that he was interacting with God the Son, whose purpose is that God the Father when he was up on the mountain, he says, let me see your glory. And he's like, you can't. He says, no man, even you, chosen for this purpose, can see me and live. Right? There's a lot of stuff that has to be done before you can look on my face and live. That's why that promise is at the end of Revelation. We will see his face and we will be like him for we will see him as he is. It means that all of salvation, all of life has finally been created in us and we are new creations. That's That's something even now in our Christian life is not yet. God shows up. Don't ask to look at his face. Not yet. Not yet. An angel, just an angel would be overwhelming to us at this point. We don't have concept of how grand this is beyond here. In verse 16 is where we really see the development of this as the Lord is speaking to Moses. He says, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, all the heads of the houses, right? whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them, bring them to the tent of meeting and let them stand there with you. Now, if you were one of these 70 elders, you would be shaking in your boots. Nobody enters the tent of meeting except Moses. Anyone who would ever try gets killed on the spot before they set their toe in there. So you hear this call and go, "Um, all the people are complaining. God wants to speak to you. What's going through your mind? He's going to have me help Moses, or he's going to have me take responsibility for my people. That's what I mean by taking responsibility. Uh, They'd be shaking in their boots here. 
right? They'd be looking at this and not knowing why in the world they're going to the tent of meeting. Nobody goes to the tent of meeting except Moses. Let them stand there with you, and I will come down, and I will talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit, capital S, that is on you, and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you. Do you see New Testament language here? The spirit amongst the people of God, in addition to that, one of the abilities given is to bear one another's burdens. That stuff is all found its foundations here. Why is it that these 70 elders were given to the, uh, to the people? It was so that they would have a place to go and a place to be corrected, reprimanded, and encouraged. But notice what's going on with the Spirit. The Spirit of God goes from just Moses to now the 70 elders of Israel. And we're going to see one of the greatest hopes that Moses ever had. Watch this. They shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Again, man can't be alone. It's not good for him to be alone. Callbacks all the way to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 should be ringing in your ears. Say to the people, consecrate yourself for tomorrow you shall eat meat. <laughs> this is, I love the, there's, there's kind of a, you know what schadenfreude is? Um, the uh, kind of smiling when somebody gets what's coming to them. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a vice. It's enjoying the pain of another, right? When they're doing something wrong and kind of watching it, it's like, yeah, I mean, come on. You know, if you see somebody driving erratically and endangering everyone on the road, then you see them spin out the smile on your face, that's schadenfreude. <laughs> and part of this, we'll see that because, um, at least when I read this passage, because the way that God deals with these people is, fine, you want meat? I'll give you so much meat, it's coming out your nostrils, and watch this, watch this story uh, develop. He says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. It was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. I will give you meat, he's saying, until you hate it. Because you will find out that it doesn't matter what I give you, eventually you will complain. That's a remarkable testament there. He says, why? Why do they do this? He says, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I am number, uh, uh, the people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot and have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Again, he's focusing on his inability here. Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. If you're, uh, if you're uh, good at telling the future of the biblical text, I'm pretty sure which way you know it's going to go. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And this is where he fulfills what he promised at the beginning. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Ability they did not have before. What is the purpose of a prophet? I think a lot of people are misunderstanding the purpose of a prophet. The purpose of the prophet is not to tell the future. The purpose of the prophet is to relay the word of God, whether it deals with the future 
or sins in the life of the people or the past or anything else. It is to simply be the mouthpiece of God's word. Thankfully, now we actually have the scriptures in written form. And so prophecy in the New Testament era takes on a completely different purpose, and its main focus is the Word of God. But in the Old Testament, what did they have? The direct, verbal Word of God. And so what did God verbally say to them that these now 70 elders were to prophesy? It was to pass on to the people the warning of God and also the provision of meat. Ability they didn't have before. In other words, respect for and fealty towards the word of God is also not a natural ability for men and women. We do not have a natural ability to love the word of God. We do not have a natural ability to respect it. We do not have a natural ability even to understand it. The scriptures say this to us explicitly in the New Testament. Why is it the people that do not belong to the Lord don't understand the scriptures? Because they're spiritually discerned. They are, they are bifurcated in mind, and they are attempting to live this life without the word of God. Why were they even getting manna in the wilderness at all? It is show that they understand that they can't live just on bread. That's not real life. Just because you wake up every morning, breathe, eat, and see the sun come up, doesn't mean you're truly alive. And the New Testament will say this explicitly. Again, what's pictured in the Old Testament is stated explicitly in the New we were dead in trespasses and sins. God made us alive, Ephesians chapter 2. Here, that picture is defined by the fact that these men could not even pass on the warnings of the Lord without his spirit on them. It would have been Moses' job to go to everyone and tell them. Here, Moses is given help. They prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. What you will see very often in the Old Testament as these pictures are for a time or for a season, for a moment, for a purpose, a singular time. Moses was unusual. Actually, Moses and David are the most unusual interactors with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because Moses had the Spirit for much of his ministry. David had it for his whole life from the day he was anointed to the day of his death, and he writes about it. It's one of the most beautiful pictures. I call him the only Christian of the Old Testament when it comes to the Holy Spirit, because nobody interacted with the Holy Spirit like David did. Moses had a very unique relationship with the Holy Spirit as well, but it's always for a time. It's always for a purpose. For Moses, it was to, li- to deliver the people of God. What, is, what was the first thing that Moses said? I don't have the ability to do that. I can't speak. I don't want to. I don't like it. I'm comfortable out here. And God says, I know, I know, I know. It doesn't change anything. Two of the 70 didn't join them at the camp or at the tent of meeting. Did that change what God was going to do? No. The two men remained in the camp. One was named Eldad and the other was named Medad. I would imagine they're brothers or something because those are horrible names. And the spirit rested on them too. They didn't even have what it took to come to the tent of meeting. This is one of those aspects, I believe, I would have an opinion on this part, is that they were too terrified to go. And so they tried to protect their life by staying in the camp. I don't know what's going to happen to the other guys, but I'm not going to be there. Yeah. But the spirit rested on them too. You think maybe because they were afraid? Yes, I do. Because they were among those who were registered, and they had a command directly from God to come to the tent of meeting. I think they were afraid. And they still prophesied. Yep. Yeah. 
Isn't that fantastic? What an interesting picture of it. They were among those who were registered to go to the tent of meeting, but they had not gone to the tent. And so they prophesied instead of in front of the tent of meeting, they were prophesying out in the camp. In other words, their family were hearing the words of the Lord before every other family. All the heads of the families were to be called to the tent of meeting. They were already signed up to go and they just didn't go. And so Joshua, who also was not allowed to the tent of meeting that day, Uh, sorry, I just looked at, I, I just scrolled to a different section here. Okay, verse 27, a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medab are prophesying, uh, prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, the son of Mun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. They're carrying out an ability of God without your approval. And they didn't come here as they were supposed to. Look at Moses' response. It's one of my favorite hopes in the Old Testament by any person. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. When is that hope brought to life? When does that ever happen in salvation's history? Moses' hope for it's here back in Numbers 11. This is like in 1420 B.C., 1430 B.C. When does that actually happen, that the Spirit of the Lord goes to all the people and not just the leaders and the rulers? Where do we finally see that? Hint, it's not in the Old Testament. Yeah. Now, Pentecost is the first instance of it, But those 120 people in that upper room were not all the saved people in the world. We will see when we go to the book of Acts that there was a definitive rollout of the Holy Spirit as the gospel went out. Starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Just as the gospel spread, the Holy Spirit went with it. right? And so we will see this, um, to put it in crass terms from our culture, this staged rollout of the Holy Spirit. But by the time we come to Acts chapter 18 everywhere and complete. But Pentecost is where that starts. And by the time you get to the close of the book of Acts, the wish of Moses comes true. All the people of the Lord have the spirit of God. That means we're not just dependent on a priest. We're not just dependent on a prophet anymore. Now we have ability in every single Christian in the church age to actually carry out the Christian life which is why we'll see those commands in ways that we never saw in the Old Testament, live lives worthy of the gospel. In our natural ability, do we have that ability? No. Not even close. Worthy of the gospel? Nobody's worthy of the gospel in their own right. This is why when we, when we make the Holy Spirit about how we feel or what, what special, cool, magical, mystical abilities, maybe to heal somebody or lengthen their legs or make their arthritis go away, this is not the Holy Spirit. That's not what he does. He did do some healings, but it was very unusual. In fact, most people have never charted it out. But the times where God actually healed physical sicknesses are incredibly rare, all throughout the scriptures even. They happen, the vast majority of them happened during the ministry of Christ and the first apostles and only then for the first couple of years. Outside of that, you have like Elijah and Elisha. You have Moses with his sister Miriam, actually in the very next chapter, Numbers 12. Uh, you have Naaman the Hittite, you have just a couple of little instances of it throughout Scripture, but the vast majority of the time, 
The Spirit of God is doing nothing about miraculous healings. The vast majority of the time has to do with, this is the word of the Lord, this is what it says, this is what you must do. And when we finally come to the New Testament, we see you are to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't can't make that happen in our lives. We can't just make up our mind to go, you know what, let's see, today, the fruit of the Spirit, we're learning gentleness, kindness, self-control. Okay, I'm going uh, to get a book on how to be kind and a book on how to be patient and a book on how to be self-controlled. How's that going to work? Good. Right. It's kind of like saying to an angry person, just calm down, stop being angry. Someone having a panic attack, dude, it's not a big deal. We don't have that kind of control naturally of ourselves. And it's not even just in the emotional stage. What about in the areas of sin? This is what Jesus was trying to get people to see in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you think you're... You think out of this good-evil separation, you're good because you haven't committed adultery? Have you thought about it? You see the insidious nature of sin and how it's going to destroy you? It says, you, those of you who haven't committed adultery, have you lusted? Those of you who haven't murdered, have you hated? He's trying to show us that just a little bit of that evil is going to take you over if you depend on yourself. Listen to my words, he says at the end of that sermon. My words, because my words are life. Listen to my words, why? Because man who listens to my words will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The one who doesn't builds his house on sand. And when evil, when difficulty, when suffering, when frustrations come, you will ruin your life. Because we don't have the ability to carry it out. That is pictured right here. And Moses is saying, guys, you, you're offended for my sake, he says to Joshua. You, you think I'll take offense that the Lord is using somebody else as a mouthpiece for his word? I wish every single person that followed the Lord had his spirit. That they would know the things I know. That they would love the word of God. That they would see what it is that God is doing. Verse 30, Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. You cannot have the Holy Spirit be about life and there not be in an evil world instances of death. Look at the culmination of this story. Just like like the flood, when the Spirit was pulled. When the Spirit comes in, He is pushing everything towards life. And you may look at this story and say, why is it that God deals with them so harshly? I want you to see it. Verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, by the way. The word in Hebrew for spirit and for wind are the same word. This is not referring to the spirit of the Lord. It's just using a parallel picture that they would have seen directly. The wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea. Quail don't live in the sea. We're talking about creation here. These quail are being created by God to feed them, just like the manna was every morning. And he let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side. That is miles of quail covering the ground, just there for the picking. It's the weirdest harvest (laughs) you'd ever see. Uh, About two cubits above the ground, that's three feet deep, quail, miles in circumference. Go get your meat. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day just to gather the quail. Millions of people. When they had the list of 600,000 people, 
that's just the heads of households. We're talking probably three or four million people total going out all day, all night, all the next day just to gather it. How much, just think of it on the household level, if you had five people living in your house, how much quail could you gather in 36 hours straight of just walking quail into your house? Your whole house is filled to the brim. Yeah, <laughs> something else. Now you have to prepare it, and this is all you get to eat for a whole month. So your entire house is just filled to the brim with quail, and you got to pluck them. A quail are particularly annoying to get the meat out of, by the way. It's not like a chicken, you know, or a turkey or something like this. Quail is this big; it takes a whole, almost as much work as a chicken, and it feeds like one person for one meal. So you've got a lot of work now ahead of you. They gathered for this. Uh, those who gathered, um, uh, those who gathered the least, gathered about ten homers. That means for each person, each person gathered about ten homers. That's six bushels, about two hundred and twenty liters in old breakdown. So you're talking somewhere in the area of fifty to sixty gallons worth of quail per person. <laughs> that's that's a terrifying amount. They spread them out for themselves all around the camp. It wasn't just in their houses. It was in the streets. It was in their yards. It was in their backyards, on their roofs, everywhere. Quail, quail everywhere. This is how God deals with this. Um, While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and he killed them with a great plague. Isn't that interesting? Take the first bite. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava. Uh, in, uh, in Hebrew, it means the graves of craving. You want to supply what will support your life on your terms, you will end up in a grave. That is a very, very harsh lesson. This means for the church, what is the food that God has given us but his word? What if we replace it with something else? What if we replace the word of God with something else? We best just set our feet in the grave. What's the point? It won't actually bring life. What it'll bring is graves of craving for food other than what God has given. The whole point he sent manna was to show them that they can't even supply food for themselves. Why do they think that they can support spiritual life for themselves? Therefore, the name was place, uh, the name of that place was called uh, Kibroth Hata'ava, because they, there they buried the people that had the craving. And from Kibroth Hata'ava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained there at Hazaroth. Did they learn the lesson? No. Did we? I hope so. And here it is in the Word of God to show us that the way that God brings life is not on our terms, and it is not the way we would prefer. Nobody asked for Jesus of Nazareth to die on the cross for them. Nobody. He did of his own will, of the Father's will, because that's how God was going to bring life into this world. And people who try to find salvation some other way, through self-actualization or through in improving their moral stance so God would be happy, you are, you are dealing with approaching life on a level that the creator of all life did not give you a right to do so. This is why salvation is not by works. It's not because God just randomly chose to save people by faith. It's because you can't do the works of God. It doesn't work like that. We talked about it from John 6. Surprisingly, these are going to be parallel for a couple of weeks. In John 6, 
What is it that Jesus says is the work of the Father? They said, tell us what to be doing, to be doing the works of the Father. He says, here's the work of the Father. Believe on him whom he sent. Is that a natural ability for us? No. No. We learn all through Scripture, and then it's it's lined up for us in Romans chapter 3. There is none who does good, none who desires God, no one. Everyone does evil all the way. And he quotes from seven different Old Testament passages and lays it out. Not a single person has ever, ever, ever wanted the things of the Lord. Nobody will believe the Lord unless he brings them to life first. And in the church age, we call that regeneration, where the Holy Spirit brings somebody to life, and their first thing they do when they see God is to trust him. That's not because they were convinced. That is because God brought them to life. And all glory goes to him for this. And this is the same standard and the same structure as it's always been. Here it is shown to us in a temporal way, here with these pictures and these foreshadowings, but in the ultimate sense, we have the same thing in Christ himself. Christ isn't enough. He's the bread from heaven. He best be enough for us, right? The same thing when it comes to the Spirit. Is the Spirit enough for us? Best be because there's no other Holy Spirit. There's only evil spirits. There's not, there's not an, an alternative plan to salvation. There's not like a plan B. There's, there's one way that God brings life to these mortal flesh bodies of ours. And there's one source of nutrition. And that here is prefigured bread, meat, bodies. It's really interesting. And then uh, also in the tabernacle, the way of life must come on God's terms. That's what we start seeing. And God will save his people in his own way. If you were uh, in an Old Testament saint, how are you interacting with the Lord? Were you just going, well, I, I got to bring this sacrifice, otherwise he's going to kill me? No. If you were truly an Old Testament saint, and I don't just mean a person that was in Israel. Not all people who are in Israel are Israel. That's a direct quote from Romans. Those who truly were Old Testament saints, how did they look on God? God will save us in his own way and in his own time, and I will be obedient with what he gives me today. It's not any more harder than that. We have the same thing with us. We haven't seen full salvation yet, right? First Peter 1 says we are waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is, there is an aspect to salvation we have not laid eyes on yet. A full culmination of where sin is wiped out and this good evil that we took on where the evil is taking over, where good actually comes and bulldozes the evil. That's why we must put on immortality and all of these things. All of this is to be said to say, do not look at yourself, your plans, your way, or your preferences to save yourself. Can't be done. And the Holy Spirit will be at the center of that story all the way through the scriptures. And I hope to, uh, I hope to continue reminding us of that as we go through. Um, we are going to be out of the Pentateuch by next Sunday already, which is remarkable to me. And we're going to be in the book of Judges the place where evil starts winning again, and the Lord defeats evil in some of the most bizarre ways, and he's using the Spirit in almost every one of them. Um, Really, really cool stuff. So Book of Judges is one one of the places where the action starts picking up, and you'll see some of the most unlikely heroes imaginable, people like Samson um, and Othniel and Gideon, where the Spirit of the Lord is interacting with them in ways he's never interacted with anyone before. Samson, if you just look at his life, you go, what, what, what a... What a screw-up on every single course and every single attempt. Um, that's on purpose. And, and what the Holy Spirit does 
regardless of who he is, is uh, pretty remarkable stuff. Any questions here at the end? Yeah, would you would you say that this could be the one of the first parts of where um, the people of the Lord uh, evangelized? Define what you mean. Well, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. That not only that, but they prophesied. Mm-hmm. And 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 Joshua said, hey, Moses, aren't you going to stop this? He said, No, let him go. Yeah, uh, if so, if by evangelism you mean by giving the news yeah, of what the Lord was going right. to do, yep, yeah. absolutely. So evangelism would be a strange term to apply to that. I know. Giving out the word of the Lord and what the Lord said, absolutely. Which is all evangelism should be, by the way. Figure of speech. Um, but yes, it would be the first instance of it. Yeah. Yep, I think it's uh, interesting. You know, because it wasn't just upon the seventy. Now. Nope. Now, and that's how it handed. You're right, because it went from Moses to the elders, but then the job would hand down to the families by generation. They were to tell the next ones. And at that point, it didn't require the Holy Spirit to do that, but it did for the elders so that Moses wouldn't be overwhelmed. Yep, very much so. Really important in the New Testament era to realize that all Christians are the priests of God. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I do communion the way I do, to remind us of the fact that all of us come to Christ straight. You don't come through your pastor, through elders, or even through the church. Through the church. Uh, you go to Christ straight. Why? Because he came to you straight up. That's a, that's a remarkable gift to the church. that should never be forgotten. Yeah, good point, though. Awesome. All right, let's end. Thank you, guys. Oh, that's a good service. I thought so. Thank you.